0: Matthew 21 1 through 17 we're doing pastor Stan's version ESV the triumphal entry now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anything says anything to you Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to him to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies have you prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there.
1: Morning. So uh, it's Palm Sunday, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And if you have been with us the you know, last five or six weeks, whatever it was, we have been taking communion every week as part of a lead up and preparation for uh, for the Easter season. So normally you've done that earlier in the service. Today we're going to do that as at the end as part of our kind of entrance into the Easter week or entrance into the Passion Week. So that, that will be coming in a moment. So you know, we refer to this as the Passion Week. It starts with Palm Sunday. It's Jesus's last week on earth. It's a time where we remember um, really all the different events that, that, that happened in that final week. And so the start of all of that is Palm Sunday. So if you've, you've been in the church before or you've been to church around Easter time, I'm sure it's a story you are familiar with. The events of it are, are relatively simple. Jesus goes and gets a cult he rides into the into Jerusalem. Some people are happy about that, some people are not happy about that. He goes to the temple, he turns over the tables. Again, some people are happy about that, some people are not happy about that. And that's basically it, right? Like the actual events are are pretty simple. But it's the meaning behind those events, the the things that are being done and understood by everyone involved in those events. That's the complicated part, and that's what we're going to look at today. So the way the story presents itself, it's in all four of the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them highlights this moment, and so it's an important moment. And, and they basically are all relatively the same. There's some nuanced details here and there, but overall they basically flow the same way. And you've got four main characters you've got the disciples, you've got the crowd of people from Jerusalem, you've got the religious elite, which is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then you have Jesus. And The first three characters, the the crowd, the Pharisees, the disciples, those those groups, they're all understanding all of these events a certain way, and each of them has their way of seeing it, but none of them is seeing it the way Jesus sees it, right? None of them are understanding what Jesus is trying to do, and so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the passage once, and we're going to try and go through it first with the misunderstanding. What were those guys understanding? What were they, how were they seeing it? And then we'll go back through it again and see this is what Jesus was actually trying to do. But where this is all really going is really it's trying to present methods and goals. Methods and goals. The Pharisees, the religious elite, the crowd, the disciples, they have a certain methodology that they're expecting and a certain set of goals that they're expecting out of their Messiah. And Jesus, being the actual Messiah, has a completely different methodology and a completely different set of goals that he's actually doing. So, before we get started, we're going to be in Matthew 21, by the way. Matthew 21, if you want to open up there. Before we get started, um, what you need to know by way of background is that, you know, so all of this takes place in Israel, and so basically everybody involved in the gospel stories is Jewish, and every Jewish person has grown up hearing this narrative, that they are God's chosen people. And God wanted them to rule and reign over everything. And their ancestors were unfaithful to God. So God sent them into exile and had to discipline them through that. And there's been a lot of different nations oppressing them over the years. But they're waiting, right now it's Rome, but they're waiting one day for God to give them a king who's gonna be called the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to start a new kingdom and they're going to get out of exile and they're going to get, get to be back on top again. They're gonna be the ones ruling. No longer will people be oppressing them, but they'll be in, in a position of rulership and authority. And that's a real you know, oversimplification of kind of the, the larger narrative that they were hearing, but that basically boils down to what they thought about things. And so in light of growing up, hearing that every day of your life, thinking about that, expecting that, believing that, thinking that this is how, you know what's eventually going to happen, people have come up with all sorts of different ways of understanding what is God doing? And so you have all these different groups of people who essentially, you know, they think they've cracked the code on how to get God to bring them this Messiah person. And so you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees thought that the way you got God to bring the Messiah was we had to be extra holy. And so what holy meant in their mind was that they were going to add a bunch of extra rules to God's law to essentially show God, hey, look at how holy we are. See, we figured it out. We're not unfaithful like our ancestors were. And so you should send us the Messiah. So it's all about like adding a bunch of rules. And then you have this group that's called the Essenes. They don't really show up in the New Testament all that much. But basically what they were is they, they looked at the larger Israel, and they said, okay, this is all terrible. We're going to go out to the desert and do our own thing, and we're going to be this little special community of really perfect people. And God will look at that, and he'll go, yeah, the rest of Israel is terrible too, but you guys, I'm going to bring the Messiah out of you. And so they were going get, to get it that way. And then you had this group called the Zealots. And the Zealots, you basically what they thought was, okay, what we have to do is we have to force God's hand. And so we need to fight Rome. We need to go to battle with Rome. We need to get Rome, you know, come and attack us. So let's, you know, start riots and attack people and kill Roman officials and and all this kind of stuff. And by basically like causing a war, God will have to send us the Messiah to protect us. And so that's how they're thinking about things. And then you got the Sadducees. They appear a lot in the New Testament. They don't actually believe in the Messiah. They don't think any of that's real. And so they've just kind of accepted, this is life now. We got to make the most of it. So we're going to join up with Rome. And we're going to use kind of Rome's channels to to gain influence and to gain power and to gain money and, and all that kind of stuff. And then the last group was just a bunch of everyday people who were just trying their best. And for a lot of them, their best was very sinful, but they were just there right? Like they didn't fit into any of those categories, but they are just trying to have a normal life and all of that. And so then Jesus shows up and Jesus is healing people and he's casting out demons and he's getting followers and he's describing and he's got all this teaching and he's describing all of the things that he's doing as a kingdom. And so what's going on then in essence is everyone is starting to hear Jesus talk about kingdom and they're mapping their preconceived expectations of how they think Messiah and kingdom work a- onto Jesus, and so they're all expecting certain things out of Jesus. So if they were the Pharisees, they thought, "Hey, the Messiah is supposed to be following our set of rules. This Jesus guy doesn't follow our set of rules. Not the Messiah." If you were a zealot, okay, the Messiah is supposed to bring you know a, a war, and you know, okay, there's this Jesus guy. He seems to be gathering followers. Maybe he's trying to put an army together. You know, like they're all trying to put their storyline onto Jesus. And Jesus has been going around doing all sorts of nice things for people, healing people. He even says, hey, this is actually going to end with me dying and then resurrecting. And basically what ends up happening, everyone's got their preconceived notions. No one is actually listening to Jesus. All the parts that don't make sense to them, they just kind of filter out and move on. And they try and fit Jesus into their box, right? Their way of seeing things. And so, um, it's with that in mind that we're going to now jump into our passage with all of that kind of background. So we're going to take the disciples and the crowd together, because the way the narrative is going to present itself is that the disciples are going to go first, and then as they are cheering and praising him and doing things, the crowd is joining in with response. They're kind of being led by the disciples to, to understand things. But before we actually look at our passage, there's a little bit of lead up that happens to this moment with the disciples. So right before this, uh, or this is one, one other story, but the story right before that one, the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, right? Like day before, hours before, whatever it is. Jerusalem is on the horizon. And as they're getting close, James and John start arguing with each other, or actually, just back that up. They go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, can we sit at your left and right hand? Which is a way of saying, can we be the most important people in the kingdom after you? And then the other disciples get upset and start arguing, because they wanted to be the most important people. And it's this story that gives us an insight into, okay, basically in this final week of Jesus' life, how are, how are his closest people understanding what's going on? And right now, they're basically thinking, oh, we're gonna get to Jerusalem, whatever's gonna happen there is gonna happen, but at the end of it, we're gonna be in charge, we're gonna be in power, positions of authority, we're gonna get elevated, we're gonna get status, we're gonna get wealth, we're gonna be the new elites. We're going to be the new people in charge. And Jesus has to correct them and say, no, no, it's not going to be about any of that. In fact, it's going to be about being a servant. And so they had that as a conversation. And then the other thing you just need to know, we just need to understand who this crowd of disciples were. So the disciples as a whole are, you know, are kind of a mixed bag. It's people from all over. And then the main 12 disciples, you've got you know, a bunch of different people. You've got some fishermen. You've got a tax collector. And two guys I want to highlight for you. Uh, so one is Simon the Zealot. So like I just said, the Zealots thought about violence, they thought about, you know, inciting Rome into a war, they thought about rebellion, all of that kind of stuff. So Simon definitely has, you know, violence, rebellion in his backdrop of understanding the Messiah. The second person is Judas. So you got two Judases in in the, you know, the disciple crew. Uh, You got Judas, the son of James, and then you got Judas Iscariot. You got to distinguish between the two. You don't want to be confused for the wrong Judas. And so Judas Iscariot, uh, so Iscariot is not his last name, though that would have been, a, you know, they didn't have last names back then. And so that would have been a really convenient way to distinguish him. You know, I'm Judas who betrayed Jesus and I invented the last name, but no, it's not that. Um, so what Iscariot could mean, you got two options. One, it could be the Latin version of the Greek version of the Hebrew, Ishkiriath, which is just to say, man of Kiriath, okay, so that's like his hometown, that's one option. Your other option is that Iscariot could be a derivative of the word Sicarii. So who the Sicarii were is they were the extremist group within the zealots, and it literally means dagger men, and so what Sicarii did was that they always had a dagger with them and they carried it around that if there was ever an opportune time where a Roman official looked vulnerable or it looked like there was a riot that they could incite, or things like that. Yeah, as Joe is stabbing someone, that's exactly what they were doing, right? <laughs> like, they're, they're gonna start something. Now, you, you take that for what you will. I'm just trying to present this case that potentially there's a, definitely at least one guy in Jesus' crowd who has that zealot mentality, and maybe even two, right? Like, there is violence on the mind, there is war on the mind with at least some of the disciples. Okay, so now let's look at our story. We're in Matthew 21. Uh, Let's take verses 1 through 11 first. So it says this. Now, uh, sorry, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, "Say to the say to the daughter of of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Your hum, your sorry. Behold, the, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so we're gonna skip the cult thing. We'll come back to that when we're doing Jesus' version of this. But basically what happens is that Jesus approaches the city, Uh, the disciples go ahead, and and they they get the crowd involved, and they start laying down palm branches, they start laying down cloaks, they cheer Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Hosanna in the highest, And, and that's kind of the entrance into the city. So, starting with the positive things. So, on the positive side, they're laying down palm branches. So the palm branches are to, it's a callback to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was this feast where Israel celebrated the fact that God was among them. God was with them. God was dwelling, you know, tabernacle was the precursor to the temple. It's where they could access God. And you use palm branches in that celebration. So, So they're calling back that idea. And they're saying, Hosanna, which means praise. And they are praising the son of David and, uh, and they're referencing the Messiah, and they're referencing uh, God in all of this, God in the highest, all that kind of stuff. So there are some positive things at a face value, but it's what they're meaning by those things that we see, oh, actually they're like way off base on all of this. So on the not positive side of things, it's really kind of the underlying layer of, of these surface level ex- expressions. So, while, uh, so taking the cloaks, what do they mean by the cloaks? So cloaks can be one of two things, or two things at the same time, really. Uh, One thing that would happen is when Caesar rode into a city, you know, in triumph over a city, people would lay down their cloaks before him as he was entering in the city. It was a way of marking his victory, marking his dominance, all of that kind of stuff. So on one level, they could be saying, Caesar's here, right? We have a new Caesar here. On another level, there is actually an Old Testament reference. There's only one Old Testament reference to one of Israel's kings who, in his inauguration, cloaks were laid down before him. So this king is Jehu. Jehu shows up in kind of the time of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha were the prophets who dealt with Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if you're reading your Old Testament, every time there's a king, you'll say, you know, this is a you know really bad king, but he wasn't as bad as Ahab, right? Like, Ahab was the worst one, right? And so Elijah and Elisha, were you know prophets against that, and part of their ministry was that they were going to anoint this guy Jehu to be king in Ahab's place, and he was going to wipe out the house of, of Ahab. And when you go into into First King, sorry, Second Kings, and you read about Jehu, you know the entire you know two pages that he gets, it's all about assassinations and deceit and just taking vengeance on people. He is a very violent king. He is a very war mongering type of person. Right, like he is a he is a uh, a king who is you know is not peaceful in any way, and so what they are are really trying to say is that they are locating Jesus either in the line of Caesar or in the line of Jehu, and really to kind of add to this is you've got what they say is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, so this is a quote from from Psalm one eighteen, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen Um, and. The way, the way quotations work in the New Testament, whenever someone quotes something, they're not just quoting that one thing. They're quoting that one thing as a representation of the, you know, the entire thing that it comes from. So if they quote a prophecy, it's the whole prophecy in mind. If they quote a psalm, it's the whole psalm in mind, right? So this part comes from the second half uh, of 118. And if you, you know, Uh, If you go and read 118, you'll see a lot of positive things at the end. You know, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, enter his courts with praise, you know, things like that. But that's all an outpouring of the beginning part of Psalm 118. So I'm gonna read you verses 10 through 13 to start. So it says, all the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was failing, but the Lord helped me. So Psalm 118 is a story about Israel being attacked by all sorts of different, uh, different tribes and nations and kingdoms and having to fight back and having to fight back. And then it says in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of Righteousness. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And so the way that Psalm 118 works is we're attacked, we're oppressed. It looks like it's the end, but God is gonna deliver us. And then it references the ideas of the right hand does valiantly. And this is a callback to Exodus 15, which is the song of Moses after they crossed the Red Sea. And so what's going on in our New Testament story is the crowd and the disciples, in their way of understanding things, they are saying, Jehu is here, Caesar is here. We are getting a new Exodus. We are getting a new Red Sea. And uh, Rome is gonna be the ones drowning. You know, they're, they're in their mind. They've got all this sort of stuff about, we're gonna get back at our enemies. We're going to be back on top. We're going to fight against the people who have been oppressing with us. God is with us. The Messiah is here. But the God of the Messiah that they have is a God of vengeance, a Messiah of war, a Messiah of uh, rebellion, all of that kind of stuff. And so their method of of stuff is violence. And their goal is to get to be at top, at, at the top of the pyramid, at the top of the hierarchy in society, and putting all their enemies beneath them. Okay, so now let's move into our second scene of the story. This is when Jesus goes to the temple. And before we get to the temple, you know, just kind of by way of background what you need to know. So in the beginning, God makes us human beings, puts us in the Garden of Eden. It's this place where God's space and our space overlap and we live in this perfect relationship with him and we sin as human beings and ultimately separate those two spaces. And so the biblical story is a story of God bringing the spaces back together. And that happens through the nation of Israel. And over the course of the nation of Israel, they are given the tabernacle and they're given the temple. And those are two buildings where uh, they are supposed to be an overlapping space again. They're supposed to be reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. So they're filled with all sorts of, uh, all the art in it is uh, trees and flowers and Garden of Eden imagery. And, and it's supposed to be this place where, hey, when we're at the temple or we're at the tabernacle, we can access God again. We can go back to Eden. We can set ourselves right before him. And so uh, Israel is entrusted with that because it's through them all the nations of the earth are gonna be drawn back to them. They're gonna see what's going on in Israel and go, we want to be part of that too. So that's what's supposed to happen. It's not gonna happen. Okay, so verse twelve. It says, And the Lord Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and brought in the temple, and, and bought in the temple. And he overturned the temple, tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city into Bethany and lodged there. Okay, so, and this ideal that I just described, obviously it's not going very well. What has happened? So uh, Solomon built the first temple, got destroyed during the Babylonian exile. Ezra came and built the second temple. When Ezra built the second temple, it's actually substantially smaller than what Solomon had built. So then Rome gets in power hundreds of years later. Um, Part of their way of controlling the Jews is that through Herod, they used Herod to build a bigger temple, right, to expand what Ezra had built. And when Herod built his temple, his version of the temple, he, you know, he definitely made it a lot bigger, but the things that he introduced was he introduced all these different courts. So you had what was called the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, and you had all the, the court of the men, and he put these special entrances for uh, for the priests and all that kind of stuff. And the idea was the Gentiles could only go as far as the court as the Gentiles. The women could only go as far as their court, right? You had to be the right kind of person to go farther and farther in to the temple. And then, so the Pharisees loved this, right? The Pharisees are all about intensifying things, making it harder to get to God, showing how holy you are. They loved that setup, right? Like they loved that there were now obstacles within the temple and only certain people could go a certain way. The other thing that Rome did was they took over the priesthood, and they installed priests who were loyal to them and priests who would do uh, to do Rome's bidding You know, by controlling the people and keeping things going in Rome's favor and all that kind of stuff. And they allowed the people who they made priests to enrich themselves. So uh, what ended up happening is that instead of the temple being a place where people could go back to God, access God, people were being drawn into a relationship with God, it became about exclusion and keeping people out and only the right kinds of people were let in, and the people who considered themselves the right kind of people, they were judgmental and self-righteous, and they were always pointing the finger at everyone who didn't measure up. And then the Sadducees, who you know, they didn't believe in any sort of like redemption sort of situation, no Messiah in their mind, they just got in bed with Rome, and they were willing to do whatever Rome wanted them to do, and they saw ways to, to make money. And so what they would do is, okay, so everyone who's Jewish has to come to the temple once a year, and they have to present a sacrifice, and you can either bring an animal or you can bring money. And if you brought money, oh, well, actually, you have to buy your animal to sacrifice with temple money, and the exchange rate isn't very good for you, right? Or if you brought an animal, it's got to be this perfect animal. Uh, actually, we did the inspection. Your animal's not good enough. Here, we'll sell you this other animal instead. It's great. Oh, yeah, you know, what are you going to do with that other impure animal? You can't do anything with him. We'll take it off your hands for cheap, and then they just would sell it to someone else right? Like, the whole thing was super corrupt, super, um, you know, it, it wasn't about worshiping God anymore, right? It was about the elites getting stuff out of the people, and so um, what's going on here, so that, that's, the, that's how uh, the, the different groups of people, the disciples in the crowd, they see a Messiah, and they think, finally, a war is going to happen, and then the elites You have one of them, the Pharisees, looking at things, and they're going, hey, we don't want to get in the way of Rome. Like, let's just keep doing our holy thing. Let's keep, you know, pointing the finger at the wrong people. Let's keep, you know, things going the way it is because we don't want, we want to show God, hey, we deserve the Messiah. And the Sadducees are just going, hey, there's a good thing happening here. We're getting richer and wealthier and more status, more power, all that kind of stuff. Don't mess this up. That's why they're indignant at Jesus over this whole thing. Right? They don't really want this place to be a place of worship. So what's going on here is that um, while all of these other groups you know, in real life are opposed to each other, you know, they don't necessarily get along with each other, they're really all about the same thing. They're all different groups that are about power and status, and, and they want to be in charge, and there are groups who their uh, methods and goals do not actually understand Jesus, right? Like these groups, they want everyone to be beneath them, and they want to be the ones who are on top. They want to get vengeance on their enemies. They want to be feared. They're willing to use the sword and coercion and exclusion and separating and things like that to get those things, right? Because it's really about them and them getting to be in control and them being the ones who are enriched. And really, at the end of the day, they're all versions of kingdom, but they're all versions of the same kingdom, which that kingdom is Rome right? Like, they're just following in Rome's pattern, and Rome is just following in Babylon's pattern, and Babylon was just following in Babel's pattern, right? Like, these are, this is a biblical story of human kingdoms always being about these same things, and now God's people, quote-unquote people, I should say, the Israelites, not that, not that Israel is not God's people, but you know what I mean. Like, they're not following Jesus. They are trying to do the same thing, and they're trying to fit Jesus into that. So, that brings us back to Jesus, and it really begs the question, okay, so if that's not what Jesus was trying to do, what was Jesus trying to do? So I'm gonna read Matthew 21, verses one through 11 one more time, and then we'll, we'll take it apart. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to his disciples, two of his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, uh, put on them their cloaks, and sa- he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloak on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, "Who is this?" And the crowd said, "This is the prophet from Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee." Okay, so we'll start with this donkey thing. There's lots of layers to this donkey thing. You can go into them, but here's kind of just an intro on them. So he's gonna get this donkey from Bethpage, and after where the scene closes out, um, it's it's gonna end in Bethany. Bethphage and Bethany are two of the really poor suburbs outside Jerusalem, two really poor towns outside of Jerusalem. Bethany literally means house of the poor. So the vehicle of the poor was a donkey, right? Like Caesar had a chariot, rich people had horses, poor people had donkeys. And so on one layer, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to identify himself with the poor, with the impoverished, with the people who don't have very much, the people who are not elites. On another layer. In the Old Testament, when Solomon became king, because of the circumstances of his inauguration, he rode in on a donkey, or he rode in on a mule. You don't have to, you know, see that for yourself. But this is Jesus' way of identifying himself with Solomon, who is David's son, David's literal son. But there's supposed to be a son of David who is coming, who is going to be like David. And this is Jesus' way of saying, I'm the son of David, right? I'm the Messiah. It's a messianic term. Then a third layer. So Rome had this whole culture and system built around around how people entered a city you know, triumphally, it's a triumphal entry sort of system. And so a chariot, Caesar rode a chariot into a city or into Rome, specific, actual Rome, uh, with four horses when he wanted to say, I have won this great major victory. And it was hard, but God was with us, or the gods were with us, and, and now we've overcome, and it was this like quasi-religious, like God is with me sort of thing. Okay, when Caesar rode into a conquered, or a general rode into a conquered city, he rode a war horse. And it was a way of saying, I've beat you. I have my dominance over you. You have lost, right? But a, a colt or a, a donkey were, they had their own meeting. And they had, they had two things with them. So on the one hand, it, it was a way of uh, saying you came in peace, or that you meant to establish peace, right? And on the other hand, it was a way of saying the victory has been won, right? Like, you rode in your donkey either because you were making peace with someone or because a victory had been achieved, and there's no need for dominance if there's peace, right? It's, it's already happened, right? Like, things are secure now. Now, uh, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but in the Jewish idea, it's the idea of shalom, Right? Peace, shalom, same word, but in the Jewish idea, shalom is this idea that uh, it is a going back to Eden, right? It's bringing humanity and creation and God back together in perfect relationship, the the places overlap, we live out of the provision of God, all of that kind of stuff. So when Jesus is riding in, he's riding in on something that says, victory is here, and I'm bringing peace, I'm bringing this shalom into this thing. Okay, so the final layer is the actual prophecy. So like I said prior, when someone quotes something, they have the whole thing in mind. So what he has in mind out of this quote is, this is Zechariah 9, 9, but he has Zechariah 7 through 9 in mind. So if you want to turn there, you can turn there. It's like, you know, Matthew's the beginning of the New Testament, Malachi, Zechariah. You can turn there, but you don't have to. Uh, you can just listen along with me. And so basically what happened in chapter, chapter 7 of Zechariah is that it's an indictment on Israel for having a hard heart, you know, that they were supposed to be this kind of people, and they weren't that kind of people, and, and God has been against them. But then you have Zechariah 8, and this is what it says in verses 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. It says, and the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, And Jerusalem shall be called my faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in their hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant people in those days should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So what you have in Zechariah 8 is this idea is the people had hard hearts and God scattered them. Or sorry, in chapter 7. In chapter 8, God is bringing his people back. He's establishing a remnant to come home and he's bringing them into Jerusalem. He's bringing them into the city of peace and he's gonna dwell with them again. He's gonna be with them again. They're gonna be his people. And then as they are his people, what starts to happen is shalom is established and the manifestation of shalom is that people, old, people are living out into their old age and they're sitting in the streets with honor and children are, are flourishing out there. And then it will go on and it will talk about other things, but verse 11, it will say, but I will not deal with the remnant of his, sorry, I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And so what he's saying there is he's saying, you're not going to have to farm anymore. The vine is just going to give to you. The trees are just going to give to you. What does that make you think of? It makes you think of Eden. They didn't have to do anything in Eden. They didn't have to work for anything in Eden. God just provided for them out of the garden. He's trying to say, hey, we're going back to what this was supposed to be like. And then at the end of chapter eight, it says this in verse 22. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations, every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And so what is happening out of the city being reestablished, the people being back with God, the remnant coming back, the Edenic state being established, other nations are going to see this, and they are going to see people who are in relationship with God, and they're going to see what's happening with them, and they're going to grab hold of them, and they're say, take me with you. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of what's going on between you and God. So then you have chapter 9, And chapter 9 starts actually with God saying he's going to cut off the nations who have typically been Israel's enemy. But it's not because they are, you know, Israel's enemy. It says in in verse 7, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like the clan of Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. It's a way of saying, I'm going to bring those nations in. They're going to get to participate in this. They're not going to be enemies. They're going to be people who are part of us. And then Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we got our actual prophecy, and this is what he says. This is the, the whole prophecy. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from rivers to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, return to your stronghold, old prisoner of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. That's verse 12. We're going to come to verse 13 in a second. I know that they go together. Okay, so what he says is he says that when the king comes and he establishes his kingdom, he is going to remove the war horse and the bow and the chariot. He's going to take all of those things out of this kingdom that he's bringing. So he's saying he's going to take the weapons of war Away, You're not going to need those anymore. Those are unnecessary items. And he says, this kingdom is going to start expanding to all the ends of the earth. It's going to encompass and engulf everything. It's going to go for, it's not going to have any end. And it's going to be filled with a remnant prisoner people, people being restored. And so all of that begs this question, okay, normally empires are expanded through conquest, through war, through stuff like that happening. So how is this kingdom going to get expanded if you don't have that kind of stuff anymore? Verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up the sons of Zion against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And so he says, the way that we're going to expand this kingdom is through the people. The people are going to be the thing that go and quote unquote conquer. But in the context of everything else going on in Zechariah, it's not conquering enemies. It's conquering in the sense of They're seeing what is happening with people and God and the relationship that they have, and they're gonna cling to them, and they're gonna wanna be part of this, and they're gonna come in. Nations who used to be against God are gonna see people with God and say, I wanna be part of them." So the way that Jesus is seeing himself, you can go back to Matthew, Matthew 21. The way that Jesus is seeing himself out of this first scene is that he is one of the poor, he is the son of David, he's an already victorious king bringing peace, And he is coming to gather a remnant people who through them, they're gonna draw the nations in, right? It's not an exclusionary thing in any way. It's actually an invitational thing. And so then Jesus heads to the temple it's our final scene. And then we'll kind of wrap up what this means for us. So remember, the temple is built on division at this point. It's about who's in, who's out. It's about corruption. But it's not meant to be any of those things. So if you get an opportunity to go to Israel, you go to Israel, um, they'll take you all these places and they'll say, well, this story probably happened here or it could happen there. We'll go to them both so you feel like you got it, right? Or this thing happened here but not really here. It's actually like, you know, 200 feet below us and all the rebels built on top of it or whatever. But then you go to the temple and they will tell you, we are 100% certain this spot is where Jesus was. And the spot that they're talking about is called the Southern Steps. And the Southern Steps, one, they're sure because they're still there. But the other reason that they're sure is because the southern steps, after Herod had built all these different things and divisions, whatever, the southern steps were for the common people. And Jesus walked up the common people's steps into his temple. And then when he gets to the top of the temple, he sees the corruption, he sees everything going on, he sees the money changers taking advantage of people, and he goes and knocks it all over. Is where he gets the whip and all that kind of stuff. And he says, my house was supposed to be a house of prayer. And again, this goes back to a prophecy this is Isaiah 56, if I could find it. Isaiah 56. I'm just going to read it. It will be obvious what's going on here. It says, Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Keep justice and do righteousness. For, sorry, for that's what the Lord says. Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come. My righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate from me from his people, and let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, and better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and they shall not be cut off. And foreigners who join themselves in the Lord to minister to him, to the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already grafted in. And so it is with that, that Jesus has in mind all of this and what happens immediately after he clears the temple it says in verse 14 and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them right the people who were outcasts people who wouldn't have been allowed in the temple people who who were told they're not good enough to be here and there's even this kind of background karma expectation that the only reason they're blind or lame is because they sinned or their parents sinned or something along those lines they get to go into the temple they get to be restored they get to go back to Eden they get what it was always supposed to be And so what's going on with the triumphal entry is that Jesus was bringing a kingdom and the established groups didn't understand him because what they wanted, they had a certain set of goals and they had a certain methodology that went with it. And he didn't fit any of that. His goals and his methodology didn't work with their versions of kingdom. It was an entirely different sort of thing. The kingdoms of Caesar and of this world, they're all about winners and losers and they want to introduce divisions and separations and they want the top to get things and the bottom to suffer and they do all this through coercion and through the sword and through corruption and really at the end of the day what they're saying is hey something like that is going to exist why shouldn't it be you why shouldn't you be the one at the top why shouldn't you be the one benefiting benefiting from it and Jesus' kingdom is something completely different because really what it's saying is He is making a city of shalom. He's making a city of Eden. And he wants to draw in the lost, and the remnant, and the foreigner, and the outcast, and the people who suffered in Caesar's kingdom, and the people who weren't allowed in, and he wants them to experience the shalom of God. He wants them to experience the restoration. And the way he's going to do that is through poverty rather than riches, through humiliation rather than pride, through peace rather than the sword through sending people who know God in such a way that it causes people to look at them and go, I want to be part of that, rather than sending people out there to point the finger at anybody who doesn't measure up. And it will ultimately happen because Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. And that's going to be validated over the course of the Passion Week in that Jesus is going to die on the cross, but he's going to resurrect to show that sin and death don't have their power and that he is ultimately authoritative over everything. So what that all means for us is it brings this question Jesus brought a a kingdom, and now he needs citizens for that kingdom, citizens who will follow within his path of methodology and for his goals. And this is why Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when you hear that, oftentimes what we think that means is that, okay, this is all going to burn, one day I'm going to retire someplace better, it's called heaven, and it's going to be great. And that's not at all what Paul means. Paul has a very specific idea of citizenship in mind. Citizenship in this time period, what had happened was 100 years before Jesus, the Roman Empire had expanded and there were all sorts of civil wars going on and things were not necessarily going super well for Rome. And they sent all these soldiers, they won these wars, and the last thing that the, the officials wanted was for those soldiers to come back to Italy. Uh, soldiers coming back with money and power and a group of followers that saw them in battle and all that kind of stuff, that's the last thing that the, the Senate wants or Caesar wants. And so what, he, what they did was they had them stay out there in colonies. And the expectation was, you guys are citizens of Rome. and There's a special status that comes with that. And what we want is for you to colonize the land, colonize the people, and spread Roman culture and Roman loyalty to the culture, to the people, to everyone out there. And in that process, what happened is that uh, the, you know, the Greek isles became the Roman isles, right? Like it, be, it became to, it started to reflect Roman values, Roman desires, Roman ways of doing things. And it established peace in the, in the empire. That whole citizenship thing kept the peace, kept civil wars from cropping up again. And that's the model that Paul is handing to us. And he's saying, we are the citizens of heaven. God wants us to be placed somewhere and to colonize it into being like heaven, into being like Eden, into doing it God's ways, into representing God to them, but it has to be done the way that Jesus did it. right? The things that we saw in the triumphal entry were about poverty and humility and caring for the lost and things like that. And we have to have all of those goals and do them in Jesus' way. And that presents the choice for us. It presents the choice. Are we trying to be citizens of heaven, or are we trying to be Caesar? That's where this is really all about. Am I trying to be a citizen of heaven, or am I trying to be Caesar? A lot of us claim to be trying to be citizens of heaven, but functionally, when you look at our lives, we're really trying to be Caesar. We're trying to be in control of our own lives, or we look at people who aren't like us, and we judge them and look down upon them, and the kind of relationship with, uh, with God that we portray is not invitational. It's not something that people would want to be part of, or we use things like coercion and shame to you know try and get people in, or really deep down, it's about power and enriching ourselves. And none of those are citizens of heaven ships, citizenship of heaven stuff. It's Roman stuff. It's Caesar stuff. And what we need to do now as we are going into the Easter week, as we are wrapping up this time of the word, is we're gonna take a time of communion. And in communion, communion is a, is a reflection on the cross. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. Hopefully the ushers are aware of what's going on as well. Um, When you take communion, you remember what Jesus did for you, and you reflect, and you ask the Spirit to search your heart and show you where there are still areas of your life that they're not Christ-like, they're not Jesus-like, they're not following in the pattern of what Jesus would have. And specifically in this time, what I would encourage us to do is to really ask God, where are there areas of my life where I don't reflect you, I reflect Caesar? I'm trying to be like Rome. I'm not trying to be part of your kingdom, I'm trying to be part of my own kingdom and do things my way. And to ask the spirit to, to reveal. And as the elements are handed out, that becomes an opportunity for a time of reflection, a time of repentance, and then we will take the elements together. Because the idea would be is that in these elements, whatever brokenness we have, whatever sin we have, whatever ways we are not measuring up, we still have an opportunity to repent of all that and be made new. And we are made new through the broken body and the shed blood. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to come on the cross for us, the love that you have for us. Lord, we pray now as we approach your body and approach your blood, Lord, that it would be a time for us to see uh, where there are still areas of our life needing to be handed over to you. We pray now that your spirit would be moving, it would be revealing, it would show us uh, the way forward. In your name, Amen.